evening ladies and gentlemen and once again you are welcome to cabin devils it's amazing uh, that uh, god has allowed us a different and another chance to be able to just have a conversation with mr dave and uh, his wife carol sue concerning matters of the family and i pray and hope that once again you will be blessed tonight i was personally very very blessed with our monday program and I believe that uh, each one of us will be blessed today. Hey, Lindsay, nice to see you. It's been a long time. I hope that you are well. But thank you so much, Mildred, for joining us. Faith, thank you. Safatu, thank you. Ciao from Kenya. Glad to see you. Kipson, Asante Sana. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I don't know how they say that in Swahili, Asante Sana for coming. Uh, could not finish the whole uh, term in Swahili. But thank you so much, Peterson, also, from joining us from Kenya. Nobody, the super fun club member. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here. It's also been a while, but I'm glad that you are back with us. Cubs, Asante, and uh, let me see who else we do have here. And I think that's Esther Balo. You are welcome to Cabin Devils, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Now, talking about communication uh, today, and I was telling a friend that I do not have awkward jazz or awkward conversation to warm the microphone. We are going to jump right into our discussion. And uh, I hope that uh, this is, I hope we'll find some answers tonight, uh, especially when it comes to communication. It's kind of more complex than you would think. Let me encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, to ask questions in the chat. There is no awkward question. Even when you think you know the answer, please ask the question. You might be shocked to find that the answer is kind of different from what you already know. And the thing about marriage, it's been known to be a mystery. And uh, sometimes I don't understand why we pretend like we've not understood each other, especially when we try to communicate. One of the most disturbing things that I've read uh, in a book, um, and I know I wish I had a co-host here who would uh, give us the angle uh, of the ladies, but when someone is talking to you and they think you're hearing them, and according to you, they are murmuring, and you say, I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon, and, and they just keep going on and speaking in their low tone, what they are actually trying to say is come closer to me so we can talk. But instead of saying that, they talk to you in a very, very low tone. We pretend like we've not understood each other. We shall get to conflict resolution on Friday. And I promise you that God willing, we shall be able to get to that. But I feel like conflict resolution is at the heart of communication. We only get a problem with communication when there's a conflict. I mean, if we're all in love with each other on dinner date, no one communicates that uh, they are not understanding each other. But I think communication is at the heart of conflict. I may be wrong, but let me ask the experts who are with us today. Mr. Dave, is there a relationship between the two, communication and conflict? I may be wrong, but I feel like they're kind of connected. I don't know. Let's pretend they're connected for now. Mr. Dave. <laughs> Hi, David. Uh, we are both here sitting on our sofa where my wife is knitting a sweater for children. <laughs> Hello. And it's the afternoon here in Brazil, and we're excited to be with, uh, with you and with all of the followers. We're getting a lot of followers jumping in here today, which is exciting. Um, yes, of course, communication and conflict are intimately related. We see this in the scriptures all the way back uh, in the book of Genesis. It's interesting that uh, the first words out of Adam's mouth to his wife 
when God brought her as his greatest gift to him. And he exclaimed in, in Hebrew poetry, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because from the man she was taken. He, he literally sings to her in, in Hebrew poetry. And yet as soon as sin invades their existence, as, as the serpent injects the venom of sin into the, the veins of the human race, what next comes out of his mouth with regard to his wife is a curse. He, he blames her for all of the problems that have come into his life, and he blames God himself. So we see that the conflict is a direct uh, reversal of godly communication because of sin, which exists in all of our relationships. That's, that's interesting. Um, I, I kind of did not think we were going that direction. But again, I was reminded uh, by a friend uh, recently that when you're trying to look at any topic, try and go back to the beginning. Usually you find an answer. And it's interesting that we can be able to pinpoint exactly where that is from uh, the book of Genesis. But thank you. Thank you so much. Now, coming to my second question. It's going to be a long question. I hope you can keep track, uh, even for those of us who are listening in tonight. But I don't know how many of you here um, have heard of these things uh, that they call love languages. I may not be the best expert when it comes to these love languages. I, and I don't want to belittle anyone's ideas when we talk about these things, love languages and stuff like that. But, but someone may miss heaven because someone dying for you is not your love language. I think you know where I'm getting at. I mean, if if love languages were the foundation of what we believe, this is my view, and I, I'm, I'm going to beg to be corrected. Um, Christ might have had to show love in so many different ways, and I want to guess maybe one billion ways, depending on the total population of the world. I, I bring this up because we are commanded to love like Christ loved the church as husbands. Now, Dave, I, I think sometimes we go wrong when we are stuck in our ways. And I, and I got some of these clues when I was listening to a gentleman uh, by the name of Tim Keller when he was talking about foolishness. And, and he said that uh, temperaments are kind of the shortcut to our lack of wisdom. We get stuck in our ways. And I'm coming to love languages. And, and I think we fail to understand each other because of these things called temperaments and love language. I've had these things talked about, and I don't think I have a particular temperament. I know they must have come up with a name for people like me who fail to identify what category we belong to. And I, I want to suggest to us here that can we be Christians instead of trying to be either a lion or a leopard? Talking about love languages, I know I have just mixed up the two, temperaments and, uh, and love could could you educate people like me that are confused, especially if your marriage feels like a jigsaw puzzle, just when you've understood where the piece needs to be put, the piece kind of changes, and nothing seems to fit. I'm using a lot of metaphors uh, here. Try and keep up with me. It's true that to communicate, people need to speak the same language. But I personally, Dave, do not think that it's necessary to be belong to a, or to understand a particular love language. Yes, we need to speak the same language, but I think people's languages evolve. And uh, this is sometimes, to give an example, sometimes the word I love you can start to mean good morning. 
just because one's love language is different, it doesn't mean this thing cannot work. I think we should be able to understand each other and not try to confuse this whole marriage thing. I think we are making it so complicated by trying to say, me, this is what I understand love to be like. Do you think, Dave, that these things play a role in someone trying to get stuck in their own ways and trying to want to be loved in a particular way? Have you come across these things called temperaments and love languages? And how do they play in this whole topic of communication, Dave? Okay, um, that that was material for about three programs, so I guess we're already scheduled for next year. Um, and I, I would be more than happy to answer your question if you had given me a present, but you didn't give me a present, so I don't feel loved, and I don't feel an obligation to answer your question. However, you don't have to. I will be gracious to you and speak words of kindness to you at this point. So David, let me give some, some, just some brief thoughts. If we want to think biblically, and we have given our lives to teaching God's word, especially in this area of family, there are many interesting observations that we can make based on studies of love languages and temperaments and personality inventories but that's all they are. They are observations. That, that would be what psychology offers at its very best. And that would be some statistical analysis, some analysis, some observations. But I would understand that the law of proportion in understanding the scriptures means that we emphasize what God emphasizes. And we do not spend a lot of time in what God does not spend a lot of time developing. I understand from 2 Peter chapter 1 that he has given us all things that we need for life and godliness. From 2 Timothy 3, that all of the scripture is inspired and gives us what is useful that we might be perfect and perfectly suited for every good work. So the fact that we do not really have scripture that talks about love languages as an, a fundamental criterion for living and coexisting and loving one another as a husband and spouse leads me to believe that it doesn't go beyond an interesting observation. It could be useful in some cases, but it should not be an emphasis. You yourself very well stated, people are fluid. Uh, we are not to be placed in, in a box. Uh, if the closest the scriptures come to doing this kind of thing is in the book of Proverbs. So if we're going to classify people, we should classify them the way the scriptures do. In Proverbs, we have the wise, those who live life from God's perspective above the sun. And then we have a whole series of types of fools, the, the simpleton fool who doesn't know yet that he doesn't know, and then other classes of, of hardened fools who get to the point of being mockers who have very little hope. That's how I would prefer to, to look at people based on the way they act. Um, I think it helps with application in that we, we have very specific commands in scripture. The husband is commanded to love his wife and the wife is commanded to respect her husband. Now, what normally happens is I will show respect in the way that I feel 
is respect, but that might not communicate respect to my husband. So it's my job to study my husband and see what is it that communicates respect to him. So whether I think I'm communicating respect, but he's not hearing it, then I need to change. And I need to make sure that the tone of voice that I use or my body language, that those are communicating in a way that he understands it as respect. And a husband, he may think, well, I'm doing all of these things to show love to my wife, but he hasn't taken the time to study his wife and see how does she understand love? What communicates love to her? So it's, It's not so much the languages as it is each one of us being a real student of our spouse and seeing what is the best way that I can love or respect my spouse. I think that we have two scriptures that would lead in that direction. The one you've already mentioned, Ephesians 5, um, husbands are commanded to love their wives. But Paul makes very clear that love is sacrifice. So giving myself to another selflessly is what Christ did for us on the cross. Um, For many years, I would try to love my wife in ways that were not really sacrificial to me. In fact, I expected her to notice what I was doing, to praise me for what I was doing. And ultimately, I was loving myself and not selflessly serving her. First Peter chapter three, verse seven commands husbands to know their wives and treat them with honor. So there can be helpful observations uh, concerning in, in, a, in a marriage about what is it, how does my spouse respond best? What communicates sacrifice? What is a truly selfless act in the eyes of my, my spouse? For my wife, it is not telling her, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it is truly when I demonstrate that in ways that are not self-loving, but serving to her. So again, as in everything, there is balance. I do not think that this is an emphasis. I don't think we have to make it complicated. I do think we need to study each other and we need to make personal sacrifices in the power of the spirit by Christ and not calling attention to self. My next question, Dave, is exactly your last word, self. And I was going to ask the question, in in trying to understand each other and uh, study each other, going back to the previous episode, which most people here may not have had the privilege of listening to, though I know some uh, were able to listen to, you did mention something when we we brought up the question of... uh, should we, to what extent uh, should we try to please another? And we said, there's a point that you made and you said that most of the times when we are choosing or wanting to please another partner, we, we are looking for something. And an example you gave was affirmation or a compliment from them that we've served them. We, we try to do what they want so we can get something. And in, in trying to digest this whole topic of love languages in communication, I, I think selfishness plays a huge, huge role. And uh, I think it becomes a problem when you begin to look at, at another person's gesture of love or another person's way of expression of love as not satisfactory when we are selfish. I'll give the example, this gentleman washes dishes 
and in trying to serve the wife. But the wife does not think that's the way she understands love. And I think at that point right there is the concept of being selfish. And I think that is one thing in the way, that's one thing each one of us needs to be able to uh, more like screen, more evaluate our motives and make sure there is no, there's no attitude of selfishness. I think Philippians does put it very, very well. Consider the interests of another. David, um, if I can jump yes. in there, I, I think you have identified the essence of the Christian life. Um, to be totally honest, I have probably never, ever loved my wife with totally pure motives, served my wife that way. I have never preached a message. I have never participated in a Cabin Devo's live podcast with totally pure motives. Uh, Isaiah says that even our works of righteousness are, are like filthy rags. Now, obviously, as believers in Christ Jesus, he transforms those things. Uh, but we will always have mixed motives and we are always purging and purifying, burning away the dross of self uh, from the crucible of other centeredness. So that, that at the same time gives us some relief. We're all in process. We are, are moving toward the goal. He will finish the good work that he has begun in us, Philippians 1, 6 says, but we're in process. And so we learn and we grow. Grace frees us from self. It frees us from when our spouse says, you know, you wash the dishes, but you are really serving yourself. And we can humble ourselves and recognize this. It also frees us from demanding to be served in a certain way. That's how we finished our last program, talking about, about habits that irritate one another. It's a two-way street. Why does what so-and-so does bother me so much? Why is self so high on the throne of my life that I insist that things be done my way? And on the other hand, why is self so high on the throne of my life that I refuse to change to put away my dirty clothes? So we are all in process and marriage is one of the most wonderful places where if we are freed in Christ by the truth, if we let the golden masks fall and we allow ourselves to be raw and exposed, we can grow tremendously in intimacy with one another and in Christ likeness. Thank you so much, uh, Dave. You, you did bring out a good point right there that caused me to think of something Grace and I were talking about a few months, I would say, ago. And we're just reflecting on our marriages and uh, how sometimes when we begin to understand each other, when we begin to grow in our service and love. Um, and, and, and there's something I mentioned to her that I would want to re-echo to those of us who are listening in right now that those difficulties that we go through when we are married, they kind of refine us. And, 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 and Dave alluded to this when he said that it's one of the best institutes uh, God has put in place to make us better. And this is the problem. This is the problem. The problem comes when marriage purifies us and we become better men, we become better women. And our friends begin to watch what we have become. And the problem is, they begin to admire what we have become. And there goes the problem. Why? Because the love that you want from home, you're not getting it. You're getting it now from friends who 
are beginning to admire what you have become. The respect you're not getting from home, you begin to get it from elsewhere. Why? Because they're beginning to see what you have become. They don't know the full story. They don't know the full process. Only your wife, only your husband knows the full process. So, ladies and gentlemen, stop listening to the flattery that you may get from away from your home because they do not know the full story. Only your wife knows you best. Only your husband knows you best. That's just a caution for those of you who know exactly what I'm talking about. But Dave, one last question before I can invite you to share with us exclusively. There could be someone here, maybe you or Carol can just take a minute to talk to someone here that thinks until this point, the problem is not them. It is their spouse who may or may not be listening in right now. Just just address one or two of us who may be thinking that they're not the problem. It is someone else, either a fellow listener or their spouse, and it's not them. Just give them some brief question. Uh, Why should they stay listening to us tonight? Well, it is always the temptation to think that the problem is someone else because I see so clearly the the faults and difficulties and errors in someone else's life. And I am so blind to the things in my own life. And so our natural tendency would be to say, well, this isn't my problem. It's my spouse. Now, in some cases, maybe the spouse does have a higher percentage of fault or whatever. But the fact is that you only have control over one person. You cannot change your spouse. You can only change yourself. And when God tells us in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good, what he's saying is, if you keep reading into Romans 8, 29, is they all work together for good if they make us look more like Jesus. So when you are in a situation, instead of asking why or pleading with God to change it, the question might be, God, how do you want to work in my life through this situation? I'm asking you to change my spouse, but in the meantime, while this process is taking place, how do you want to change me? How do you want me to respond in this situation? And if you allow God to sculpt you so that you look more and more like Jesus, then that was a good thing. So every hard situation, even if it's 95% the fault of someone else. But if you allow God to work in your own life and make you look more like Jesus, then you are responding correctly to that situation. I really love where we are going with this. Um, It's so much not an emphasis on becoming something else apart from serving Christ. And I think I love the title, a Christ-centered marriage. And and I love the fact that you guys keep referring to it just to become more like Christ, to become more like Christ. And uh, I I mean, the only person we are in charge of is me, not the other. But ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who missed the previous uh, episode, allow me to just give you a sneak peek of what you missed, and then we'll ask Dave to share with us from God's Word exclusively. Previously on Carbon Devils. As a man, I'm thinking, how can I please my wife? And the wife is thinking, how can I please this man? So what happens? The wife does everything she can to please the man, but the man is not pleased. 
he still comes back home late he's still not impressed by the food and he's still angry he's still and then the man tries to do everything that he can to please his wife but he just never is able to please her but there's so much that is happening in the home that we are both overwhelmed trying to please each other how do we stop this crazy circle that never ends and center on Christ Well, David, I think you're touching on a more basic question in the Christian life. And that would be, what do we base our identity on? Is my identity having a perfect family? Is my identity being a wonderful wife and a, or a wonderful, um, a, a wonderful mother, a wonderful father? Is my identity based on getting everything right? When we do things in our own strength, we wind up exhausted. And so that is not the goal. The ultimate goal is not to please your husband or please your wife. That can be an intermediate goal in order to reach the final goal, which is obeying Christ, looking like Christ, being like Christ. But if I try to do that in my own strength, if I try to do ministry in my own strength, if I try to be an employer, or an employee and please my boss or please those who work for me. In all of those things, I'm loading on myself the kind of burden that the Pharisees loaded on people in the New Testament. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He actually uses a term that was used of the loads and the burdens that the Pharisees would place on people of expectations and a to-do list and, and, and legalism. And Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. How are we going to find rest? He says, take upon, take my yoke. That would be that that bar that would hold two cattle together to plow a field. Well, Jesus is the one who carries the load. We're just in it with him. We're following his lead. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am meek and humble and you will find rest for your souls because I, my yoke is, is easy and my burden is light. So when it's all about us, when it's all about me trying to please my husband or my wife, oftentimes it's to get what I want, either approval or an identity or or a reputation. It's all about me and a Christ-centered family. That's not it at all. If you're going to listen to a podcast before you go to bed, bed. you can as well grow in your faith. Cabin 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 Devils, your number one live podcast. Every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. 9 p.m. East African time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to invite you to follow Cabin Devils right now on this uh, Podbean. And also, if you have not yet subscribed, please go right now to cabindevils.com and subscribe with your email address so you can receive these recordings plus other content in your email inbox. Well, at this point in time, allow me to invite Dave and Carol to share with us from God's Word exclusively. If you have any questions for Dave, post them in the chat and Dave will get to them either during this presentation or after. Dave and Carol, you are welcome. 
Okay, thanks again. I am going to dive in with a couple observations on your last two questions, David, as we, we continue to talk. You, you have such great questions that are so practical. And uh, I, at one point we mentioned in our last program uh, that the goal in Christian marriage is not happiness, but holiness. If our goal is to change the other person, when God's goal is to mold, sculpt the image of Christ in us, we will always be frustrated. We love a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage in which he develops that. In fact, the subtitle of the book is something to the effect, what if God's goal for your marriage is not that you be happy, but that you be holy? And he tells the story of President Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States and, and widely considered the premier president in the history of the United States for what he did in leading the country through the Civil War and, and everything else. But interestingly enough, while President Abraham Lincoln in almost all polls is listed as the, the most popular, the best president of all, his wife is listed as the worst first lady of all. She was an extremely difficult woman. And Gary Thomas in his book points out the parallel. Is it possible that such a hard, difficult marriage was what sculpted Abraham Lincoln into being such a capable leader? If he lived with a civil war every day in his home, is it any wonder that he was able to lead the country through the civil war? All of that to say that we don't want to have a civil war in our homes, but even if our spouse never changes, our communication never changes, our, our ways of dealing with conflict never changes, God can use even a difficult marriage to make me look more like Jesus. And that is what his goal is for us. And then just another thought, when you mentioned about flattery and getting our affirmation from those outside of the home, which is so, so common, whether it be an industry, a career, or even ministry. As we've mentioned, it's so easy for us to try to hold up a golden mask to impress others, but usually that mask falls at home. I literally cringe when I'm presented in conferences or speaking engagements by a pastor or a leader who has never really met me. He's read one of our books. He's heard a message on YouTube or on the internet, and he presents me as a man of God. I cringe because that man has not spent a minute in my home. You call me a man of God after living with me in my four walls for a week or a month at a time, and then you'll discover some of the things about me that I already know. I know how many times I've made my wife weep. I know how many times I have disciplined my children in unfairness or anger. I know how many times greed and lust have taken over my heart. I don't know that I've ever preached or ministered in a totally pure way. And so once again, our identity has to be based on our position in Christ and not our performance. And we need to understand that the home is one of the greatest instruments that God uses. If we are disarmed, if we drop the mask and live an authentic, genuine life lived by grace, nothing to prove, nothing to lose, nothing to gain, but my inassolable position in Christ Jesus frees me by the truth to be authentic and genuine and grow in family relationships.
So that's where we want to pick up again here just in a few moments with, with some biblical teaching and some practical applications. If you remember our last time together, we introduced the subject of a Christ-centered marriage, saying that when Christ is in the center, not at the top of a list of priorities and we check off Jesus, but that he's the center, then the arrow that reaches the center inevitably passes through the home, my work, my play and entertainment and all of the things I do. Unfortunately, idols of the heart often dethrone Christ, substitute him in our home and our lives. And then even those of us who sincerely desire to honor Christ and have a Christ-centered marriage, oftentimes we don't know what that looks like. So what we said in our last time is that ultimately we are glorifying God by looking like Christ. We look like Christ when we have an other-centered life, and we can add here an other-centered marriage, so that when we live an other-centered marriage, we ultimately glorify God. He, he peers from heaven and he sees Gibson, who has sacrificially loved his wife, and says, Angel Gabriel, Michael, did you see what Gibson did there? That really looks like Jesus. God is honored. The Father is honored when we imitate the Son. So today, as we come back to our idea that biblical marriage is other-centered, it is each for the other and both for God, we want to ask the question, what does an other-centered marriage look like in the area of communication? Communication, um, yes, it's intimately related to conflict, but it affects everything. It affects sexuality. It affects the raising of our children. It affects our ministry. So I want you to think about Jesus' communication, if we're talking about Christ-centered communication, and I want you to think about some biblical texts which talk about self-centered communication. And then we're going to bring all that together in some practical applications. Listen to what Proverbs 18, 1 and 2 say. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Those two verses at the beginning of Proverbs 18, and Proverbs has so much to say about others-centered communication, which is ultimately wise communication. Biblical wisdom means living life with a long view, and the long view is to honor others before honoring ourselves. If you isolate yourself, which has been the tendency since Genesis 3, especially for us men, the tendency is not to open our hearts, to express our hearts. The thing that our wives most desire is that intimacy of a sharing of the center of our being. But we isolate themselves, ourselves and ultimately we reveal ourselves to be foolish. That's the opposite of God's plan for marriage. Verse 2 that says a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion gives many practical applications. Uh, how often, even in what we have shared in this program, sofa time, when we have those few moments at the end of the day, even in the presence of our children that see mom and dad are communicating, but I communicate what I had to happen today. My victories, my defeats. So often I have shared with my wife in our sofa time, the things that happened in my day. And then, okay, let's go eat. Dave, can I share about my day? 
A fool doesn't think about what the other has to say, but only in what he or she wants to say. In fact, later on in the same chapter, verse 13 says this. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 13 says that how often when we are greeting a new person at church uh, in some business engagement and they present themselves their name and but we're already thinking, I wonder how I, I look, I wonder how I'm presenting myself. And we don't even remember the person's name, much less do we express interest in the other. Uh, we recently heard once again, the council, anytime that you are with other people, Instead of immediately trying to make a good impression and telling about yourself and your accomplishments, a Christ-centered, others-centered engagement asks them questions. We have a daughter-in-law who is so good at that. Anytime she communicates with us, she has a series of seven, eight, nine questions. Everybody likes to talk about himself. Well, this is what Jesus did. His focus as he interviewed and talked to other people was always getting to the center of their hearts. So, so think about Jesus for a second. We're talking about a Christ-centered home. What does Christ-centered communication look like? In the Christmas season, we often quote John 1.14, which says the word, interesting, that Jesus is communication. He is the logos. He is the word manifest in human flesh. He dwelt or made his tent among us. Luke 4, 22 says this. All spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. If there is one thing that characterizes the speech of Jesus and which attracted sinners to him always, it was the grace that flowed from him. We, we, we show kindness to people who are kind to us. But the, the definition of grace is the unmerited favor of God to those who do not deserve it. That is so countercultural. It is so supernatural. It is a manifestation of the life of Christ in me. I, Dave, who have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So as Jesus interacted with people, they were attracted to someone. It was not a, a cheap grace, an easy grace. Jesus exposed people's sin, but always led them to the sufficiency of God. And so Paul in the New Testament, when he talks about the kind of speech that should characterize us, and, and shortly before he even talks about biblical marriage, listen to what he says in Ephesians 4.29 about gracious other-centered speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That is stupendous. It is amazing. I can be a paralytic confined to a bed, but my tongue is an instrument of God's unmerited favor. I can be the principal instrument of God's unmerited favor to a contentious spouse, to a husband who doesn't meet my needs, to a wife who, who exasperates me. That's when grace comes into action. That's when Jesus transforms the heart to transform the tongue. 
It's interesting in the parallel passage in the book of Colossians chapter four, we get another command along the same lines. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to how you ought to, you ought to answer each person. The idea is that our speech should always be graciously salty, stimulating, encouraging, confronting when confrontation is necessary, but not rubbing people's faces in the muck of their sin, always directing them to the brilliance and the radiance of the throne, which pours out grace, as Hebrews 4 tells us. You know, there's an interesting passage in the book of Song of Solomon, which has so much uh, interesting illustrations about what this looks like in a real life marriage between Solomon and the Shulamite. Their names actually are the compliments one of the other, which bring the idea of peace, shalom. Shalomo and, Shulam, and Shulamite are both from the Hebrew word shalom, which is peace or well-being. And each of them ministered grace into the life of the other. In fact, the woman says of her husband, after a conflict, when he was kind to her, she had rejected his, his sexual advances. He, he left sad, discouraged, but he never retaliated. And she says that his lips were like lilies, dripping liquid myrrh, perfume. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. She describes an individual whose very countenance and words are characterized by grace. That is Christ-centered communication. It's other-centered communication. Now, here's how that applies to the women. The book of Proverbs has much to say about the mouth, and it also speaks about women who use their hands, and we can say their mouths, to destroy their homes. Listen to what Proverbs 14.1 says. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Many of us probably have met women like that who have destroyed her husband's ministry, have destroyed their family. And oftentimes it's not just with their hands, but often with their mouth. And yet Proverbs ends with that description of the virtuous woman, the woman of, of godly character and strength who fears the Lord, lives in his strength, in his power. Listen to how she uses her words in Proverbs 31, 26. The virtuous woman opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness or the law of grace is on her tongue. The law of grace. It's an interesting expression in Hebrew. It's actually the phrase, the Torah of Hesed. Hesed is that loyal, pursuing, merciful love of God, which pursues us with lassos of love and kindness and does not let us rest in peace. Or as Psalm 23 says, he, he pursues us as, as, as relentlessly desiring us. The woman who is virtuous has the law, the Torah of loving kindness on her lips. Now, I wanna, we wanna finish this part of our program and then answer some questions with some really practical ideas. Uh, there are not necessarily biblical commands, but just some practical suggestions which can help us in developing an other-centered, grace 
ministering life in the home. Number one, we've already talked about, demonstrate genuine interest in what is happening in the other's life. This can start from the very beginning of the day. How did you sleep last night? How is your headache? Yesterday when you fell, do you have any bruises? The husband in Ephesians chapter five is more concerned about his wife's health and well-being than he is his own. I'm, I'm using that practical illustration because yesterday my wife was a grandmother of 19, goes out and runs on Monday or Tuesday, eight to 10 kilometers. And unfortunately yesterday where we live here at Word of Life in Brazil, she tripped on a stone and scraped her entire body. And so she is quite scraped up and quite sore. And so I need to learn to show interest in what is happening in the other's life. How are the sales today? How did the store go? How was traffic? How are the kids? Number two, cultivate the desire to truly hear what the other is saying. Not like the isolated person who is only interested in, in putting out what is in his or her interior, his or her heart, but in a context of grace, truly and freely disarmed, trying to understand the other. Number three. Do not interrupt, dominate the conversation, or speak too often or too well of yourself. In a biblical marriage, we have freedom one with the other to point out some of the areas that may not look like Christ. We're going to talk about that on Friday in the area of criticism and how what role criticism plays in the, the husband-wife relationship in making us more like Christ. One of the biggest crises in our whole marriage came after about 10 years because I did not know how to receive criticism and still struggle with that. But one of the things that my wife has pointed out to me, for example, in some of my message messages, Dave, you, you talked a lot about yourself. You inserted a lot of comments about how many places you've ministered or how many countries you've been to, things that didn't really contribute to the message. Now, that's really hard for me to hear. But if you speak too often or too well of yourself, you're not ministering in other-centered grace. Another thing that is, is vital, number four. Share what God is doing in your life. So many wives especially long to hear their husband share with them what they learned in their devotional time, what God is doing in their hearts to, to demonstrate some degree of vulnerability and, and allow her in. But when we shut ourselves down and we protect ourselves that is not the other-centeredness of Christ. Another practical idea which can greatly help in our communication is simply praying together. So often we establish this as like a spiritual mark on our gun belts of, of spirituality, when in fact it's, it's one of the means whereby God allows us to grow together as a husband and wife. When 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about knowing one another, a lot of that comes in the context of prayer together. You don't have to, to sit down for 45 minutes before falling asleep, and probably after five or six minutes, one of you will already be asleep at the end of the day. It can be at a mealtime or shortly after a mealtime. It may not necessarily be every day of the week, but this does not have to be a monster 
in your marriage, just a simple prayer time. If you don't know where to start, start praying for your children. If you're just a dating or engaged couple, start praying for your future relationship, your future children and grandchildren. Well, we're going to do one more thing here and we're going to then open it up. I see that some have asked some questions, but something we've developed in some of the literature that we've written and shared we call the 10 commandments for christ-centered communication some of this will overlap what we just shared and and we do not want this to be a legalistic set of of to-do things that you just add to an already overwhelming list these are just idea suggestions maybe pick out one area that God is prompting you by his Holy Spirit in this program that doesn't look quite like Jesus in the communication in all areas of your life, not just with a spouse or a fiance or a a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you're not even in a relationship. These principles affect all of our lives. The first commandment would say this, you shall not harbor bitterness in your heart from one day to the next. This is the greatest enemy of Christ-centered communication. Even when you've been deeply hurt, grace is the balsam which overcomes the scars of sin. Don't harbor bitterness. Men are told to do that in Colossians chapter three, and then to treat their wives with roughness in their speech. We're also told in Ephesians to not let the sun go down upon our wrath, but to resolve our issues. Number two. You shall not raise your voice in anger. It is so easy to do. We might even start out in a calm conversation, but as we don't succeed in convincing our spouse and seeing where they were wrong, we can become angry and our voice can be louder and louder. And one or the other may just need to say, shh, lower your voice. And it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And because you will not gain anything by shouting at each other. Number three. You shall not use negative terms or names in your discussion. It is so easy to lapse into subtle accusations in pejorative terms, saying something like, I cannot believe you did such a foolish thing. Are you calling me foolish? No, I'm just saying what you did was extremely foolish. No, you really did call her foolish. So we need to avoid those kinds of accusations. It's often helpful to state things in the way that we feel. When you said that, I felt attacked. Were you attacking me? You shall not share with others your spouse's failings. It's so easy to do that. You go to your mother or your close friend and say, oh, my husband's doing this again or whatever and share. That that is between you and your husband. That is not something to be sharing with other people. Even as a prayer request, oh, I need you to pray for my husband because he's really struggling with whatever it is. No, that is not correct. Uh, you take that to God and you may talk to your husband about it, but not with anyone else. Now, there will be an exception and we'll talk about that in our last commandment. But number five, you shall not use sex 
as a weapon against your spouse. God has created our sexuality as a glue to bind us together and to use it as a weapon to drive us apart is straight from hell. Now, obviously, if you're in the midst of a difficult discussion and you're working through issues or one has harmed and, and, and wounded the other, it may require time, but not using sex as a means to get what you want. Number six, you shall not involve third parties in your discussions or disagreements, including your children. If you and your husband cannot agree on something and you're trying to talk it all out, that that is not a time to start gain getting people who will agree with you. It's like, oh, well, so-and-so says this and so-and-so. No, 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 you don't, you don't get people on your side, especially your children, because th that's not fair to them to get mom against dad and you get your children to see whose side they're on. This is something that you work out in private. Number seven, you shall keep quiet until you truly understand what the other is saying. We've spoken a lot about that. You shall separate time daily to converse with one another. So what we're talking about here is not a long time where you have to take an hour every day for the two of you to, to talk, but at least a few minutes every day where you can share with each other how you're doing, hear from your spouse, how he's doing, what did the day look like, what is going on, you're on the same page. Now for us, what has been a very simple uh, practice is as soon as Dave gets home from work and I'm already here, we take the first five, 10 minutes to catch up. He tells me what happened in his day. I tell him what happened in my day. We're on the same page. We know how emotionally each one's doing. We know what the struggles are. And so that is something that works really, really well. We've called that sofa time from authors Gary and Anne Mariezzo, but it has been revolutionary. And we've done this on other programs and David and Grace uh, since 2017, I believe, have been practicing this as a result of one of our seminars. Next to last, number nine, you shall form good habits of conversation by spending time together. Communication involves not just quality time, but also quantity time to give us opportunities to share our hearts one with another. And number 10, you shall get help when you are not able to work through your problems. Now there comes a time where this happens with everyone. We need help. We need to seek our pastor or a godly couple to just help us think things through clearly and seek counsel. Now, sometimes maybe only one will, will want to go to counsel and the other one will not. And at that point, you will need to share things um, about your relationship, but then you need to be very careful in how you do that. You do not want to be slandering or speaking evil of your spouse, but you are going to seek counsel so that you yourself can change or know how to work in order to solve the problem. To sum up what we've been saying these first two programs and we'll continue on Friday as we talk about the difficult area of how to do all of that in the midst of conflict is that biblical marriage grows in the other centeredness of Christ. It looks like each for the other and both for God. I see that we're pretty much at the limit of our time, but David, 
That's what we have. I don't know if there's a questions here. I think I saw one at least earlier. Thank you. Thank you uh, so much. And Mr. Dave, before I can uh, get into our question and answer, which I'm really excited about, kindly let me know how much time do I still have with you? I don't want to over push this. Can I have 10 minutes just yeah, for we you can to do go 10 through minutes. at least two questions? <laughs> We actually have a counseling session scheduled for now, but they, I told them we might go 10 minutes over. So uh, we could, we could give you 10 more minutes. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask ladies and gentlemen that if you've not visited Cabin Devos yet, go to cabindevos.com and leave us your email address. Dave at the end of Friday is going to give me some of the notes. He's going to edit some of the things out and make them customized to each one of us that has been listening in tonight. Some of the PowerPoints are going to be there and I'll be able to send them to your inbox. If you'd like a copy of these podcasts, they will still be available to you in your inbox. Go to cabindivos.com and leave us your email address and name and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Now, for those of you who are single, this is a point where if you want to leave, you can leave because the coming up questions are going to be kind of very, very kind of, uh, let me not get there yet. But Dave, two questions, two questions. One is, I know we're going to come to conflict resolution on Friday, but you did talk about ungracious words. Uh, I mean, gracious words. But I wanted to ask, how do you deal with ungracious words? When we're growing up as children, we came up with the phrase, he started it. Why? Because when someone does or wrongs you, you kind of feel justified to, in a way, revenge. But how do you deal with ungracious words? Give us an example of, of you confronting Sue or the other way around. Not that she would do that, but give an example of her maybe disrespecting you publicly. We want to hear how okay. would you talk to Sue? And I know this is coming up on Friday, but give yeah. us a preview of how you. Yeah, you keep stealing you our that. best stuff, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm gonna leave. Let's let's leave. Uh, we're gonna share on Friday the key verse in communication from Proverbs which deals with exactly that question. And I'm going to ask my wife to give an illustration that is not from us, but from another couple. And then Friday we can do some of ours, if that's okay. Proverbs 15.1 is the answer to your question. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft or gentle answer turns away wrath, but grievous or harsh words stir up anger. So I'm going to let Carol Sue share with us, with everyone, a, a situation which we have referred to time and again. It actually happened with my father and my stepmother. I married my father and my stepmother 25 years ago. She passed away a couple weeks ago. We were just in the United States for her service. She was a godly woman. And this episode in our home in Brazil illustrated that for us. So my father-in-law and um, mother-in-law, they came down here to visit us down to Brazil. And my father-in-law had um, a difficult temperament. He, he was easily irritated or angered. And um, at one point he asked his wife if she had done something that he had asked her to do. And she had not, she had forgotten. And so she told him that. And you could see the anger 
starting to rise and, and he started lashing out at her with ungracious words and she turned to her to him with a smile and the kindest tone of voice. And she said to him, my dear, you tell me so many wonderful things. I can't possibly remember all of them. And he just looked at her and it was like he shrunk. Everything, everything just collapsed. He, he had no way to respond to that. And that solved it. That was a wonderful example of how to deal with ungracious words. So now Dave and I, we joke about that all the time. As soon as one starts, uh, one forgets something or doesn't do what the other's like, oh, you tell me so many wonderful things. I can't possibly remember them all. So there's your illustration. And Friday, as part of our, our discussion, we'll share our testimony about those very, very difficult moments. And they were 30 years ago. We're almost married 40 years now. But we'd been married about 10 years. And, and this very area of criticism and conflict and how I responded ungraciously and unbiblically and how that has been a constant challenge, but God has taught us so much over the years. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I know we have about five minutes to get done with our 10 minutes uh, period of grace. But let me ask another question. In your, in your conversation with us earlier on, you did mention uh, one of the recommendations was to demonstrate genuine interest. And you gave the example, uh, how, how is your headache? But let me say that sometimes when your wife tells you, I have a headache, especially in the evening, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not a question you want to ask in the morning, how was your headache? Those of you who are married know exactly what I'm talking about. This is conflict again. But how do you communicate to each other, Dave, that tonight is not the night? I'm trying to use very metaphoric words. I have no um, idea what right? you're talking about, David. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the show rated, by the way? <laughs> All right, ladies All right, and gentlemen, so let's pick it up for <laughs> I will. Let's jump into this because I mentioned this in our last program. Uh, when we mm -hmm. ministered this seminar, we actually have a, in Portuguese, it actually follows an alliteration, um, communication, conflict. And in Portuguese, the word for bed or marital bed is cama. So there's three C's. And our last point we talk about is what does an other-centered relationship look like in mm -hmm. the marriage bed? Well, it is amazing that one of the only advice that God gives in the scriptures concerning sexual performance for a married couple is in 1 Corinthians 7. And there it is exactly what we're talking about. It is the other centeredness of Christ demonstrated in the way I give my body to my spouse being more interested in his or her pleasure than my own. Now, the amazing thing and the way God constructed us is when we truly seek the other's pleasure before our own, he magnifies our own pleasure. This is part of God's amazing grace. But what does that look like in a husband-wife relationship? It means a wife, oftentimes, at least in the past, will give herself to her husband more often than perhaps would be her personal desire. 
but it also means that a husband will agree to hold back some of his desires more than he would personally want. And this is a process that goes on throughout the years. We're at 40 years still learning all of the ins and outs, which is a wonderful thing. It's a mystery. It's an adventure of growing more like Christ, even in the marriage bed, each one seeking the pleasure of the other before his own. Now, what's happened in recent years is a reversal of some of this. There have been many couples that we have counseled where the husband is satisfying himself in other ways. The couple does not go to bed at the same time. He is up till two o'clock in the morning doing only God knows what on the internet. And he no longer seeks his wife. He no longer desires his wife. And she's weeping in the bed, desiring physical intimacy with her husband. And he is selfishly satisfying himself on the internet. So, so now sometimes the situations have reversed themselves. In all of this, the only possible solution is each one truly seeking to live the other-centeredness of Christ. And by God's grace in a godly marriage, the two will meet somewhere in the middle. It won't always be what the husband wants. It won't always be what the wife wants. But with time, even in this area, their lives will blend together. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to come to the end right now. But thank you so much, Dave. Um, this is amazing. I'm actually going to listen to this podcast again, uh, just so as I can be able to pick up a couple of lessons. But thank you. Thank you so much. Allow me at this point in time to say that uh, this coming Friday, we're going to be talking about conflict. We're going to deep down into the details of what that means. Please go ahead and invite a friend. Let them know that Cabin Divorce is awesome. Guys, have a good night. And hope to see you again this coming Friday. God bless you. If you have not yet subscribed to cabindivos.com, please go there right now and give us your email address. I'll be sending you more content uh, concerning some of the things we've looked at. We have about 100 and I think 13 episodes uh, that we've already published out there. There's already 40 which are in our archives ready to be published. There's so much coming up this coming year, 2022. Give us your email address on cabindivos.com. Have a good night, and we'll see you guys soon this coming Friday. God bless you, and see you soon. If you're going to listen to a podcast before you go to before bed, you go to, before you go to bed, you can as well grow in your faith. Cabin Devils. Cabin Devils. Your number one live podcast. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. East African time.